Well, hey friends, glad to be with you today. And yes, I did get a haircut, finally. I don't know if it looks much better, but it sure feels better. Well, hey, normally I'm a pretty optimistic person. I can find the bright side of just about any situation. Karen will vouch for that, and the fact that it can be really annoying sometimes. The dictionary defines optimism this way, being hopeful and confident about the future or about the success of something. And generally, that's how I tend to view the world. But I'll confess that lately, I've had a hard time feeling very optimistic. 100,000 deaths and three months of lockdown have taken a toll on all of our spirits. Racial unrest and injustice continue to plague our nation and break our hearts. Political rancor is, is tearing us apart and making it hard to find a productive path forward. So all of this hit me pretty hard last week. And I, even in an early morning run, couldn't lift my spirits. Instead of finding clarity and, and passion, I, I found myself questioning, what's going on, Lord? Where does all this lead? What do you want from us? What do you want from me? I was beginning to wonder if we really could find a way through all of this. But in recent days, the Lord has been ministering to my spirit in a variety of ways. And I'm finding myself strangely optimistic, feeling hopeful again about, about the future, about our nation, and, and about this thing called the church. So for the next few minutes, I'd like to share with you a few of my reasons for this optimism and try to lift all of our spirits a little bit in these challenging days. Now, originally, I was going to be speaking about the church last Sunday in line with our annual meeting, which is going to take place that afternoon. But in case you hadn't heard, that annual meeting got, uh, got canceled because of some technical difficulties. So the good news is if you missed the meeting, you didn't really miss the meeting. The whole thing is recorded. You can watch it online anytime along with our annual report. You can find it right on our website at the annual report page. And if you're a member of the church, you should have received a, a ballot by email allowing you to vote on, on budget and officers. If you didn't get that email or you'd like a paper ballot, just give us a call at church and we'll be happy to, to get one to you. In any event, part of the reason for this message is to provide some context for, for the state of the church these days and to share some vision and plans for the months to come, including any thoughts about reopening, which I'll share with you towards the end of the message. So with all that in mind, let me take you to a story from the early days of the church. Uh, we find it in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 8. I'll read the opening verses. And Saul was there, giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So we're jumping into the aftermath of a terrible thing here, the stoning of Stephen. Now, some of us are familiar with this story, but recent events in our country, I think, might help us to understand just how awful this was. Stephen was a good man guilty of nothing except preaching the good news of Jesus to his people. And this was a public execution carried out by people in power. 
people who are supposed to be civic leaders and even spiritual leaders. It also seems that there are cultural factors at work here. Stephen was a Grecian Jew who was looked down upon by the Hebraic Jews, who viewed the Grecian Jews with a certain amount of suspicion, as if they were less pure. Stoning itself was a slow and brutal death, and it was carried out in public view with a crowd of people watching. Now, all of this bears uncomfortable similarities to the death of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis just a couple of weeks ago. But, but instead of leading to, to public protest and, and calls for justice, the murder of Stephen unleashed even more violence on followers of Jesus. Luke calls it a great persecution. Even as members of the Christian community are, are mourning Stephen and laying him to rest, Saul is running around, rounding up men and women and throwing them into jail. As a result, the believers had to run for their lives, literally. They had to leave Jerusalem, leaving their homes and their livelihoods, and, and, and flee to farther away towns in Judea or in the neighboring territory of Samaria. It looked and felt like the worst possible thing for the fledgling church. Just as they're getting some momentum, they run into fiercest kind of opposition. They're scattered to the four winds, and they're cut off from their leaders and their home base in Jerusalem. So these believers had every reason to wonder what was going on. Where was God in the midst of all this suffering and injustice? How could the church survive this persecution, this scattering? They, they had no earthly reason to be hopeful or optimistic. And we get it. For some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, we're finding it hard to be hopeful and optimistic right now. Will all of this protest and conversation really lead to lasting systemic change in our country when it comes to race? And how about the church? Can we really survive all these months of not being able to gather for services? It would be easy to, to give in to pessimism and despair right now. But fortunately, the, the story's not over yet. There's more to be told. So let's keep reading. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, as I reflected on these few verses on the events that follow in the rest of the chapter, I found three reasons to be hopeful and confident right now. Three reasons I still believe, and the first is that I still believe in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. This looked like disaster for the early church. Persecution, scattering, cut off from their leaders. But God was able to redeem those setbacks, to take them and turn them so they actually served his purposes for the church. 
Do you remember Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven? Some of those final words. They're recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, God's purpose from the very founding of the church was that the believers would leave Jerusalem and go to the surrounding territories and to the world bringing the gospel. But, but the, the believers had a very hard time embracing that vision. They were comfortable in Jerusalem. They liked being together. It was easy to lean on the apostles for teaching and direction. The persecution forced them to leave, to scatter to Judea and Samaria. Now, does that mean that God sent the persecution? That he arranged the stoning of Stephen? No, I don't think so. God, God is not the author of evil. He doesn't prompt people to sin, to commit acts of violence and injustice. It's the evil one who prompts us to do that. It's human beings who commit acts of violence and injustice. But God, in his wisdom and strength, is able to take those things and turn them for good so that they serve his purposes. So when we say that God is sovereign, we're not saying that everything that happens is God's will. Sin is not God's will, but it happens. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying everything that happens can be worked together for good to accomplish God's purposes. God is able to bring good from evil to turn tragedy into triumph. And that's what happens here. What was meant for evil, for the stifling of the church, becomes the very thing that leads to the expansion of the church. I think Luke is making that very point by, by referencing that particular phrase, Judea and Samaria. The same one he used back in chapter 1, verse 8. Luke sees the sovereign hand of God at work here, redeeming these evil and tragic circumstances. And I see a similar thing happening today in the life of the nation and, and the life of the church. God is taking evil and tragic things and turning them for good and for his purposes. George Floyd's death was a terrible thing. It was an evil act committed by a sinful person, enabled in part by an unjust system. But the arc of God's purpose bends toward justice. And it just may be in the sovereignty of God that we have come to an inflection point on our nation's journey towards racial equality and justice. In her conversation the other night, earlier this week, Oprah Winfrey referred to this as, as perhaps a tipping point in our nation's journey. The nation as a whole is finally paying attention. 70% of Americans now acknowledge that systemic racism is a reality in our country. Younger generations of black and white younger people are rising up together to take on this challenge and to bring about change. 
If, if we'll invite God into this moment, if we will align our hearts with his purposes, I believe we can begin to see fundamental change in the fabric of our nation. I'm hopeful about that. And I'm hopeful that the church will play a leading part in that story. In a similar way, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for the church. I believe that God is using this, this, this quarantine to reshape and reform the church. Now, let's face it. None of us are, are happy about the fact that we haven't been able to gather together for three months now, except maybe our neighbors who don't have to deal with traffic and parking problems, or, or maybe your kids who don't have to get up early and get dressed. But, but none of us are happy about this. I can assure you it is no fun preaching to a camera rather than to a room full of people. We miss seeing each other face to face and, and, and standing shoulder to shoulder with each other. And just in case you forgot what that feels like, here's a picture from one of our campuses. Here's the East Lexington crew, some of them. Remember how good it felt to be in the building, to be together again? We miss those, those days. We would never have chosen this. But in the sovereignty of God, he is using this pandemic to, to get us to do things and try things that, that we've been talking about doing and trying for a long time. For instance, we've, we've known for a long time that we need to get better in the digital space. We need to engage more people online. We need to improve the quality of our online content. And, and after three months, we're, we're beginning to do that. We're, we're getting better at it every week, we hope. This past year, we had 150,000 visitors to our website this past year. But it's not just the Sunday experience that's online. All of our ministries are now being offered in an online format. Pastor Stephen sent along a couple pictures from Watertown. Uh, here, here's one of, uh, of, of Kidstown, a Kidstown gathering that takes place on Saturday morning with all these kids and their families watching. That this is way better than cartoons on a Saturday morning. And here's this one. It's a, a women's group that meets midweek. I'm not sure what Stephen is doing in that picture, but whatever. It looks like a great group. But th those are just a few examples of how God is using this season to build his church. We're, we're, we're praying more. We're serving our community more. We are connecting with each other midweek more. And we're actually giving more. As of last week, our giving is $15,000 ahead of giving the same time last year. And that's without passing a plate in months. Now, did God send COVID-19 to get us to pray more or give more to push us online? I don't think so. But in his power and wisdom, he's able to take this thing and to turn it for good. And so I'm, I'm optimistic because I still believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm also optimistic because I still believe in the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel. Look again at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. That word preached literally means brought good news. And Luke uses that good news expression five times in chapter 8. 
And the good news was simply the gospel. The life, death, resurrection, and inaugurated kingdom of Jesus that had come to earth. Look what happens when Philip preaches that. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Lives were changed by the power of that gospel. People who were in bondage to sin and evil were set free. People who were sick and afflicted were made well. People who were just going through the motions of life discovered joy, great joy, Luke says. Lives transformed by the gospel. And I continue to see that gospel changing lives today right, right here at Grace Chapel. If you go check out our annual report online, you'll, you'll, you'll find some numbers there. 60-some baptisms, 1,300 visitors to one of our campuses last year, 1,400 children served last year, 800 middle and high school students, 2,100 people connected to a small group, 600-some people receiving care and support. I know those are numbers, but behind every one of those numbers is a person, a life that was touched by the gospel. I've mentioned that it's, it's not all that satisfying to preach to a camera like this, but there is one moment I really enjoy in this online format. And that's the moment I come to at the end of the message, when I'm able to look every listener in the eye, as I'm doing right now, and to say, if you would like to know more about Jesus, if you have any spiritual needs or questions, just reach out to us. Send me an email at brianatgrace.org. We would love to make a connection. And every week people do that. Sometimes it's just a few, sometimes it's more than that. Every week I get a handful of emails, at least, from people who are finding healing or help through one of the ministries at Grace Chapel. And it happens just as often in this online season as it did when we were having in-person services and ministries as well. And so I still believe in the power of the gospel to change lives and to change communities and our city and our nation as well. Remember, I pointed out earlier that some of what was going on here in Acts chapter 8 had cultural, if not, not quite racial overtones, but certainly ethnic overtones. There was long-standing prejudice and even hatred between Jews and Samaritans, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. But when Philip and these others preached the gospel, this gospel, it broke down those barriers. It bridged the divide. It brought joy to the city. Later on in chapter 8, Philip heads south, and he bumps into, has an encounter with an Ethiopian who believes and is baptized and becomes the first recorded black convert in the Gospels in the very earliest days of the church. I believe the Gospel can still work that kind of reconciliation today. And that's why we are leaning into this conversation about race and about justice. We've already had 80 people 
sign up to be part of the Be the Bridge discussion groups. And some of our existing groups are going to be uh, engaged in that conversation as well. And so I'm hopeful because I still believe in the sovereignty of God. I still believe in the power of the gospel. And finally, I'm hopeful because I still believe in the mission of the church. Now, you knew that was coming, right? It had to feel terrible for these believers to have to have to leave Jerusalem like that, to leave behind their home groups, to leave behind their weekly gatherings, to leave behind their leaders, to be scattered to the wind like so many seeds. But, but look, look what happened. Wherever those seeds landed, they took root. Churches were planted. The, the, the tree of God's kingdom spread its branches so people from every culture and nation could find their way and find a home there. These believers discovered what, what, Jesus, what Stephen had tried to tell them in that final sermon of his, that they no longer needed the temple, a physical dwelling place for people to meet God, that they no longer needed the priesthood, an elite group of people who did God's work in the world. God could be present everywhere his people went by the Spirit of Jesus within them. Jesus could touch people's lives as every one of his followers reached out and ministered to others in his name. See, up until this point, it was the apostles who did all the teaching. But, but the apostles are stuck back in Jerusalem now. And so the people had to do the preaching, Philip and others. And a whole new generation of leaders emerges People like Philip and others who we're going to meet later in the book of Acts. And I see a similar thing happening in the church today, happening in our church today. We're discovering that we don't need a building to be the church. As a pastoral staff, we're, we're not investing a whole lot of energy right now in getting you to come to, our, to the building. We're investing our energy in helping you to live your lives, to love your neighbors in ways that in ways that advance God's kingdom and, and point people to Jesus. And that's a good thing. As I said a, a couple of months ago, I, I think the church is, is doing some of its best work right now as we invest our energies outward, serving our communities. A couple examples. For weeks now, an army of folks in, at the Wilmington campus, about 50-some families, have been creating and delivering encouragement cards to medical personnel, in hospitals and all across the region, and to residents of assisted living facilities and places like that. 1,500 cards have gone out touching people with the love and the welcome of Jesus. Listen to a story that uh, Pastor Richard tells about, about JC, uh, someone from the Lexington campus who, who works at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Richard writes, Early one morning, I got a call from a family who had a loved one in the ICU at Brigham and Women's who was close to death. They were so distraught because they were not allowed in to see her. The Lord brought JC to mind and I texted him to see if he could go see her. He responded immediately, dropped everything and found her. JC went into her room and was able to connect the family to her. As he held the phone to her ear and held her hand, the family got to say their goodbyes and sing Amazing Grace to her. J.C. led the family in prayer and committed her to the Lord's care. She passed within the hour. 
What I love about that story is that it wasn't a pastor who came to the rescue. It was a Christ follower out in the workplace doing his daily work and bringing the love of Jesus wherever he went. And that's what these believers did when they were scattered to Judea and Samaria. And that's what you and I do every week when we scatter to our our workplaces or working from home right now. We scatter to our neighborhoods. We bring the presence and the ministry of God to the people and places we find ourselves in every day. That's true in these days of quarantine, and it will be true in the days to come as well. And that's a good thing for the church to be about. And so I believe that the Lord is using this season to scatter us like seeds all over greater Boston, bringing the gospel with us. He's reminding us that our mission is not to fill our buildings, it's to reach people. Our mission is not to fill buildings, it's to reach people. So all that to say, friends, we are not in a panic about getting back into our buildings. We are eager to do that, certainly. But our number one priority for reopening is to ensure the safety and the health of every person who steps onto our campus. We don't want to be the infection point for some new outbreak of COVID-19. And so we want to be sure that we have all of our protocols and equipment and systems in place. We want to be sure that we can welcome every person who shows up to worship or serve or grow. We want to be certain we can provide an authentically meaningful experience of worship or fellowship or ministry when we open our doors again. So we've outlined a five-phase reopening plan. You can find it on our website at the annual report page if you would like. We don't have dates by any of those phases. We're simply going to monitor circumstances and make the best decisions that we can along the way. But but understand, we're, we're not expecting to be back in our buildings anytime soon. But we're okay with that. We're okay with that because we see God doing important things in us and through us, even in this challenging season. And so we'll continue leaning into it to the very best of our ability. One of the things I'm really excited about right now is the emergence of of new young leaders at Grace, on staff and in the congregation. Younger leaders who are more skilled and comfortable in the digital space than some of us are. Younger leaders who have a passion for for justice and, and and for service to the community and serving the common good. I'm excited to see this new wave of leaders rising up. So when I read this story in Acts chapter 8 of the scattering of the church, the image that comes to my mind is of someone trying to stomp out a fire in Jerusalem. But every time they stamp their foot, they They send glowing embers off in every direction, all over Judea and Samaria. And every place those embers land, they spark new fires of of faith and of mission. And that's what I see God doing right now as he scatters us to our neighborhoods and homes and communities in this season of quarantine and even beyond. So in spite of all the things happening in our world right now, I'm feeling hopeful. I still believe in the sovereignty of God. I still believe in the power of the gospel. 
And I still believe in the mission of the church. During the conversation that Oprah Winfrey was hosting this past week, one of the participants was the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Mayor Keisha Bottoms. And at one point she said, we have to believe there's something better for our children and our children's children. We have to believe there's something better for our children and our children's children. And I do, I do believe that. I believe there's something better for our children. I believe there's something better for our nation. I believe there's something better for the church. And I believe it not because I'm an optimist by nature. I believe it because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So now I get to do my favorite thing. If you are looking for hope these days, if you have any questions about about Jesus and the gospel, if you have any spiritual needs at all, please reach out to us. Send me an email, brianatgrace.org. We'd love to make a connection. But now let's think about these things as we enjoy this next song and Pastor Richard comes with some next steps. <laughs>